Sitting in a box undigified Gonna rewind and give them one more try Think about the days of lo-fi Mixtape Memorex and TDK Getting music out there the old-fashioned way Making the greatest hits of one day Mixtape Phonograph and dual cassette Before you could get everything on the internet But some things ain't made it there yet Mixtape Line in, line out if you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker, turn the volume to nine Here's an accidental slice of time Welcome to Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This is side A of Gen X Covers Part 2, where we curate a mixtape featuring today's artists covering Gen X tunes. That's right. So last time was Gen X artists performing tunes uh, prior to 50s, 60s, some 70s, right? Right. And now we have mostly artists from the, the 2000s. Um, yep. Covering Gen X artists. Yeah. Yep. Covering the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I'm really excited about this episode. There, yeah. there are a lot of artists that I, I think I, I'm, I'm fairly certain our, our listeners are not familiar with. So We got a really good response. I don't know if you checked on, on um, the first part. No. Yeah, 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 yeah. The numbers are really good. So okay. um, hopefully this one will continue. Good. Yeah. No, I'm glad. I'm always hoping that we give them what they want to hear. Um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with covers. I always have been. And, and I, I'm always intrigued when contemporary artists or bands cover old songs. You know, I wonder what is their motivation? Are, are they trying to pay reverence to the artistry of the musicians who influenced and inspired them? Are they trying to improve upon the original recording? Or is their motivation more personal? Are they trying to recapture the moments and memories of their youth with the songs that soundtracked those experiences? Or were they forced to cover the track by their label to garner radio play and, and sales? And does their motivation matter at all? You know, but, but to me it does. And I, I, I don't know. I, I suppose it does for, for many of our listeners as well. Covers may be of interest to fans of the original recording, but more often than not, they're disappointments, and, and possibly even more so to the interested fans. Well, there's right? almost two kinds of covers, right? There's the kind of cover that everyone knows is a cover because it's a really, really popular song. True. And then, like we've discussed before, a lot of the early 80s songs were covers of songs that did not commercially do well. Right. And the record label said, well, that band didn't do well with that song. Let's give it to Huey Lewis and the News and see how they do. Right. And so that's, that's almost two different categories. That, that is true. And, you know, in, in that context, there's no, no shame. No, there's no party foul there. You right, know, right. It, it just, um, they're, they're giving the songwriter, whoever that may be, you know, the opportunity to, you know, chart with, with, with right. the song. Um, but yeah, it's, it's when you take a, a much beloved mm-hmm. song, you know, I the silver lining always is that, you know, covers bring the older versions back to our attention. You know, older fans rejoice that songs long forgotten are new again. And for younger fans, the songs are new. One hopes that they will hopefully go to the original recordings and enjoy their authenticity, you know, Hopefully they'll they'll understand why there is a cover in the first place. Um, to be sure, covers with 
covers made with the best intentions are, are a clear sign of respect for the older recordings. You know, so who can be against that? But on the other hand, why do we need masterpieces to be reworked if the originals are so good? Is anybody ever really wanting or waiting for a song to be covered? Well, I you think know? a lot of it, you can make a comparison to movies that have been rebooted. Yeah, well, right? yeah. And so there are a lot of classic films that <laughs> the reboot was no good. Uh, and there's some that were, were actually better, I think, than the original. And there are some that um, not aren't better, but almost parallel. I'm, I'm thinking about uh, Gus Van Zandt's version of Psycho. Psycho. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, so he wasn't trying shot. to improve yeah. all, on the original. He's definitely paying homage to Hitchcock. Um, but it, it exists. It's almost like a parallel universe right now. It exists in a different reality. Um, it just depends. It, you're right. It depends on the motivation. If, if the studio is just trying to make a quick buck because they ran out of story ideas, then usually it's not going to end up being very good. Right. But if it's a filmmaker who loves a particular film and then wants to take that and, and, and play with that, um, I think that's very legitimate. No, and I would agree. I'm, I don't know. In best case scenario, successful covers fall into one of two categories, really. You know, they, they're either radical reinventions or they're enjoyable detours. That, that's kind of how I look at it. But therein lies the danger, too. You know, making a song your own can destroy a classic. Um, there's a fine line, and it's an invisible line, I think. And, and some recording artists have an innate ability to navigate the inherent danger of offending older fans. Others don't. But if you do nothing original with your newer version, then why the hell would fans of the original show out their hard-earned pay to purchase your uninspired replica? So, I mean, it, to me, it's just it's a fascinating thing, you know, when, when artists cover these older songs. And just in the six years I've subscribed to Spotify... Oh my my word! I I have created a playlist of hundreds of covers that I've discovered and and have fallen in love with. So I'm not anti-cover by by any stretch, um, and I'm not a purist. Um, for me, a cover needs to be different. I not not significantly different to the point I don't know what song you're covering. But you know, I want your stamp on it. And if if that's not there, um, you know, if you're simply I, th I think of, for instance, Weezer's cover of Africa. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not a fan. I and mean, there's yeah, I there's agree. nothing there. Well, that's worth... more that's more what a cover band would do. If you're a cover exactly. band playing in a bar, you want to sound as much like the original as possible. True. Yeah, um, that's true. Because that's what people want to hear. But if you, yeah, yeah, if you're doing a cover song as an actual recording artist, then then you want to bring a little of your personality into it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, uh, which. I tried to do it the selections I picked. As, as um, did I, yeah. Yeah. Um, to me, it's important that I can determine, you know, what song is being covered, that it be in some way uh, different. I, all of these artists, some of them radically uh, change chord structure or, or um, you know, melody. Um, some, you know, it's, it's just minor tweaks here and there, cadences or, or um, you know, a... a, a a change or a reconfiguration of the lyrical, you know, linear structure. It, but, you know, I don't know. It's always important to me that covers do not blemish the original recording. And what I have here, my 12 cuts, I, I think I think they're phenomenal. I really do. And I'm hoping that the, the listeners will really enjoy them as well. Um, yours also. I mean, I'm, I think we have 24 really good tracks yeah here. no it's, so. it's there's so many it's really tough to to make a choice um i could have chosen a couple hundred that i like so yeah i just chose ones that i felt the artist really brought their their personality to the yeah. song 
Yeah, I think it's going to be a great two-part episode. Well, let's get started. All right. Um, yeah, sorry about that, folks. I just, I suppose I got on a soapbox there for a moment. But I, um, no, it does. I'm fascinated by covers, including my first choice. Uh, this one is, actually, I'm, I'm cheating a little bit. Originally, we said it would be 2002 today, but I had to include this. I had to. It, it actually was released in 97, um, and and it did get some airplay in 98 on uh, alternative radio. It is Come On Eileen by Save Ferris. Ferris's most recent release um, was the crowd, the the crowd, <laughs> rather crowd-funded five-track EP Checkered Past. Um, at the time that it was released, it had been 18 years since fans had heard anything from the band. Um, Save Ferris was in the third tier of ska success in the mid to late 90s, uh, putting out the EP It Means Everything uh, in 1997. And they actually put out uh, two albums um, between 96 and 2000. Um, they never had a big hit on the level of the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, um, the impression that I get, for instance. But, but they had enough momentum to get their cover of Come On Eileen, uh, some radio play. When the ska boom faded away, though, so did Save Ferris. Um, during live shows in the summer of 2001, singer Monique Powell promised audiences that there would be a new album out by winter of 2002, and that never happened. Instead, guitarist-songwriter Brian Mashburn left the band in 2003 and was soon followed by the rest of the band except for Powell. Uh, Say Ferris remains one of those seminal and, and most beloved bands from that third wave of ska. Uh, they, they formed in Orange County, California in 95, and soon began to perform underground venues in Southern California. Uh, their Orange County home was fertile ground for a thriving music scene with pop, punk, and ska emerging from the region. And Safe Ferris blended the best of those three sounds and, and quickly earned a loyal following, riding a wave of support from fans all over Southern California. Um, Safe Ferris became favorites of KROQ Radio's legendary Rodney on the Rock, which resulted in regular airplay on LA's world-famous radio station, becoming the first unsigned band to do this in LA alternative radio history. Uh, their future looked bright, and to add to the promise of penning stardom, the band won a Grammy Showcase Award for Best Unsigned Band in 96, 
which earned them a contract with Epic Records. A year later, they released their first full-length album, It Means Everything. It Means Everything was a toe-tapping joy that, that left listeners bouncing in their seats. Uh, Rolling Stone magazine uh, best described the album as one dripping with infectious groove and written in the key of fun, which I kind of like that. Uh, the Ska Swing collection featured many hallmarks of the genre. Fast upstroke guitar strumming, strong walking bass lines, the bursts of horns placed high in the mix and syncopated swing-style drumming, and it all combined to provide a funky mix of easy-flowing songs that proved extremely addictive. The highlight of the album was, again, my first song for today's mixtape. Just a rousing cover of Dexie's Midnight Runner's classic, Come On Eileen. Uh, for me, the track remains one of the most mind-numbingly catchy covers of any 80s tune. Uh, the original was an adolescent sexual entreaty made more immediate by Dexie's lead singer Kevin Rowland's choked delivery. But from the opening horn lines of Say Ferris's cover to its ridiculously anthemic sing-along nature, this version just leaves you dancing with abandon, which says a lot because I don't dance. <laughs> so by 2001, though, as I said, the band had moved from uh, ska pop, the the genre was fading, um, and they, they kind of transitioned into pop punk, which caused a rift among the band members. The band dissolved in 2003, and the music industry moved onward in new directions. Uh, Safe Ferris's 14-year hiatus made it difficult to fashion a substantial comeback when they tried in 2017. Um, but as a side note, this is kind of cool. The band's name is, of course, a reference to the 1986 film, Ferris Bueller's mm -hmm. Day Off. Yeah which is pretty damn cool in itself. Yeah, um, yeah. this one, uh, it, it was released in 97, um, late 97 into into 98, which I know is cheating just a bit. But Not really, I mean, but here's a clear, I mean, even if you went early, like I think we had a few early 90s last time, like I right. chose Lemonheads. Yeah. That's early 90s. Sure. I think late 90s, you're, you're fine. Okay, I just, I, I don't know. I toyed with this, and I took it off, and I put it on, and I took it off. My list has changed so many times preparing for today's episode that I texted you last night and said, new songs. Um, but this one I just kept coming back to because it's just such a joy to listen to. I, I love, I, I like ska mm -hmm. anyway. Oh, yeah. So, you know, you throw that brass into this, and it it just wildly changes the very nature yeah, of Kevin Eileen. Definitely. So, Good pick. Good way to start. All right, well, my first one is um, from a song that came out in 1982 originally by the Pointer Sisters. Mm -hmm. um, Pointer Sisters uh, found modest success with I'm So Excited uh, originally um, in 82 and only went to number 30, though, uh, on Billboard. But two years later, this is uh, a lot of times we have re-releases, you know, larger stretch of time, but only two years later, they had a slightly remixed version that the label decided to re-release as a single, and this time it went to number one. I did not know there were two versions. Yep. I, it's hard to even really tell. I mean, they're really minor differences. So for whatever reason, um, didn't get past 30 the first time, it gave us two years, hmm. it was number one. So maybe it was ahead of its time, right? I you don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, the Pointers, they, they had a string. You don't hear anything about them. I mean, right. it's a band that's just kind of faded into obscurity in terms of... Are they in the rock? They've got to be in the rock hall, aren't they? Uh, not yet. Really? No. That surprises me. And when you count all of the sign, you have, what, Automatic, and you have Slow Hand. Well, going, have, I think they go back originally from in the early 70s when they had four members. Right. And then eventually it went down to three. Three, yeah. Um, and, and they had that, yeah, in, in the 80s, they had a huge... Oh, yeah. 
right up to and including hits. Neutron Dance yep. you know, on the soundtrack to Beverly Hills Cop. We'll jump to 2004, where American dance punk band La Tigra covered a song on their third and final record, The Island. Now, this album is a little poppier than their previous two, and covering this perfect pop song, and I think I'm so excited, is one of those perfect pop songs that I put on my perfect pop song list. Uh, it just made perfect sense. Um, three women paying tribute to one of the greatest female trios in popular music. Jigger was formed in 1998 by Kathleen Hanna, who of course is the front woman and songwriter for Bikini Kill, and also considered a pioneer of the feminist punk riot girl movement. Uh, together with Joanna Fateman and Sadie Benning, the band made their politics known with their blend of rock, punk, dance, and pop. Latigra manages to capture the driving force behind the original while making it their own with the addition of this new backing vocal, which I really like. It's a different melody. It's a backing melody that goes throughout the song and, and a rhythm that, that, that kind of floats. In fact, at one point, um, it, it actually falls into a reggae rhythm uh, for a verse. And I just really like what they did with it. Yeah, no, I um, I had heard this one before. I've ne- in fact, this is the only track I have ever heard oh, okay. from them. Um, Spotify again the algorithm just kind of threw sure. it at yeah, me yeah 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 um, I, I just assumed I, I don't know it, it's Le, Le Tigre Le Tigre well it's French I don't speak French okay. so it's Le Tiger in French is right. it T-I-G-R-E yeah. is that Tigre is it French okay because I, I kept pronouncing it as Tigre thinking Maybe it's Spanish I, I don't know it, it's definitely um, French yeah okay then I'll have to ask my son he's uh, <laughs> <laughs> he knows French I, I do not but um, no it, I love I just some of the the minor you know, changes that they add to the song. It's it's a lot of fun. Well, the, so. the band is great. They only have three records, like I mentioned, but they, they really do blend, you know, Nirvana was, was was famous for creating grunge, which kind of, especially Nirvana, blended, you know, hard rock with pop music. Right. And and this is what uh, La Tigre, La, La Tigre, how do you pronounce it, the Spanish version? Uh, well, Tigre. Tigre. Yeah. yeah. I, I, it's I, probably that. No idea. Um, but, but, <laughs> but not only did they in, incorporate those two, but then they also brought in dance. Um, and so it's kind of an, a, another subgenre of, of grunge, um, which kind of circles back around to, to new wave and dance. Everything kind of stays in the ballpark. And it does. They all play nice in the sandbox for the what most What is it? It's all rock and roll to me. Yeah, right? still rock and roll to me, definitely. <laughs> so, definitely. Um, now, it, it, it's a great track, though. This is one of those songs, regardless if it's the Porn Sisters version uh, or any of the cover versions, that just can get me going, you know? Um, if I'm if I'm working out, uh, which I don't do very much anymore, uh, and I need a little bit of extra inspiration, this is a great song to kind of get you going. 
You know, I hadn't thought about that. It it would be a good oh, it's it's a driving yeah. like I mentioned. It was it just it's a driving rhythm. Um, you get some rhythms obviously that are that are that are more chill, or, or you stick in the pocket in certain ways, like reggae is out of the pocket. Um, but a driving rhythm just kind of keeps everything moving forward, and that's what you hear here in this song. Yeah. No, it's great. Sometimes we struggle to describe yeah, yeah. a song. Yeah, yeah. We always, it's a yeah. futile, just listen to the song. <laughs> but, Make uh, your own conclusions. But These no, are our conclusions. Yeah, conclusions, but, but no, you're, you're absolutely right. Great pick. All right, you're up. All right, well, should be no surprise. I've, I've raved about them before. For my second pick that I bring to the table, I decided it was time to dive into the, the catalog of Lake Street Dive. Um, and I've chosen from their Fun Machine EP, which was released in 2012, their cover of George Michael's Faith. Well, I guess it would be nice if I could touch your body. I know not everybody has got a body like you, but I gotta think twice. Before I give my heart away And I know all the games you play Cause I played them too Oh, I need some time off From that emotion Time to pick my heart up off the floor And when that love comes down Without devotion Well, it takes a strong man, baby So I'm showing you the dark Cause I got a In 2012, Lake Street Dive was still largely unknown, um, but that all changed. They released a YouTube video of their live performance of the Jackson 5 classic, I Want You Back, uh, filmed live on a Boston sidewalk. The Brassy Sassy Collective reimagined the song as an acoustic soul masterpiece, and fronting nimble upright bass, spare but precise percussion, and swinging big easy brass lead vocalist Rachel Price captured the hearts of viewers. That video went viral, collecting over one million views in just its first few months. And seemingly overnight, this four-piece collective finally earned the visibility and, and name recognition that they had long deserved. The music industry took notice as well. Uh, they had no choice. Price is a jazz pop revelation, and in the video she came across like a pair of Joneses. You know, gritty as Sharon, and yet as sophisticated and syncopated as Ricky Lee. Uh, the video was made to promote the soon-to-be-released EP, Fun Machine, a collection of five covers and one new original, and the release was a game-changer. The band has since garnered the affection of a loyal and very rabid fan base. Now, I'm a huge fan, as I've said, but listeners new to the podcast or who do not listen every week may not have heard me talk about them before. The band is a four-piece combo, uh, birthed from Boston's New England Conservatory Jazz Program. They're kind of mixologists, of a kind of uh, like the perfect martini of soul, folk, and jazz, shaken, not stirred, and, and garnished with a sprig of indie pop sensibility. And at the, at the time of Fun Machine's release, this intoxicating formula was equal parts spare, precise percussion delivered by Philly native Mike Calabrese, uh, brassy, soulful vocals from Nashvilleian Rachel Price, um, trumpet, counterpoint, and guitar provided by Mike McDuck Olson out of Minneapolis. Um, and then you had plucky, slappy, buzzy doghouse bass lines provided by Bridget Kearney, 
who got her start at the uh, Prussel School of Music. And I love Bridget. You she, got to see them live, didn't I you? I did, yeah. She, she always favors the upright beats mm-hmm. over you know an electric. And man, she... And there's no frets on those. No. She has dexterity because, I mean, seeing her, I mean, she just, I don't know how she does the bass practice, run. Yeah, practice, I mean, lots of practice. I mean, I, I was just blown away by what she was able to do on an upright bass. Um, but but Fun Machine brought the four, uh, their tightly knit virtuosity, uh, to a collection of five incredible tracks. Uh, the Slow and Soulful Jackson 5 cover is the best of the five. And I almost went with uh, I Want You Back. It's definitely the best uh, on the album, and still it stands as one of their greatest songs as a band. Um, but I made the decision early on uh, as I was trying to limit my short list. My short list was well over 100 songs, so I <laughs> needed to whittle it down. I decided I was going to go all 80s for this two-part episode. So Jackson 5 was out. I made the decision then to go with George Michael's Faith. And it is reworked here into a New Orleans-inspired jump jazz shouter. I don't know how else to describe it. I mean, it just... I've, I've, I've yet to ever visit New Orleans. It is definitely on the bucket list. Uh, the wife and I have talked about going maybe next next summer. But, you know, I've, I've heard the music. I've seen, you know, the footage of the, the parades, you know, the jazz band, you know, just parading down uh, the street there in the French Quarter. To me, this song just sounds as though it is coming from the streets of New Orleans. It just has that, that very real uh, feel. Um, and and it is just a song I I, I love. I, I can't even ex- begin to explain <laughs> how how much this is an unexpected arrangement for the song that we all know by George Michael. Um, in the eleven years since Fun Machine's release, it has been all original material, phenomenal original material. But this year, as an aside, um, it's a great fanfare. The band released Fun Machine, the sequel, hmm. actually. Uh, and again, their uniqueness shines through on the new collection of covers uh, as they maintain that stylistic ambiguity. Um, and the one noticeable difference, though, between the 2012 release and this year's Volume 2 is the absence of guitarist, trumpeter, founding member Mike McDuck Olson. He parted waves with the band uh, after 16 years. He left shortly after the release of their last album, titled Obviously. Uh, but newer additions, Eki Burmis and on keys and, and uh, James Cornelis, uh, Cornelison, James Cornelison on guitar are equally skilled, and together Lake Street Dive continues to impress. But the one thing that you still have to credit um, Mike uh, Olson for, he was the one that gave uh, that named gave Lake Street Dive its name. Um, Lake Street is actually a seedy thoroughfare of dive bars from uh, member Mike Olson's hometown of Minneapolis. So, Lake Street Dive, that was the name chosen for the band. It has nothing to do with swimming, then. Nothing to do with swimming, now. And, you know, I always, when I first (laughs) discovered these guys, um, and I discovered them through the Jackson 5 video, I, for a year, I mispronounced their name. I kept calling it Lake Street Drive, Mm. you know, which to me made sense. But, no, it's it's, Lake Street is a street of dive. It's like Silver Sun pickups. I always thought it was about, like like a guitar pickup. Oh, it yeah. was really about picking up alcohol yeah. at a alcohol or a liquor store called yeah. <laughs> um, Silver Sun. I remember that discussion. Yeah, um, but no, I, now 
you've listened through the tracks yeah. they shared. Yeah, yeah. What's your take on their version of faith? Oh, I like it. And anytime you can take it and reimagine it in a different genre and have it work. Oh, yeah. It's beautiful. Okay. Yeah, I didn't know what, what you would think. I mean, it is just, it's unlike anything I've ever heard, yeah. Oh, yeah. really. Yeah. And to me, faith faith is one of those acoustic numbers that is great fun a few times. Sure. But it, but it's, it's one of those tracks that has been widely over overplayed. I could listen to their version, you know, bringing the jazz uh, to the song. I, I don't know that I would ever get tired of it. So. Yeah, no. And that's what's so great about these covers, because sometimes there's a melody out there that's a great melody, but it's just not in your wheelhouse. Right. Um, and so you're more apt to maybe enjoy that melody, that song, in a different genre. And I have a couple like that on my list. So. Yeah. yeah. All right. Excellent. Excellent. Well, um, we're going to go. Actually, I just checked. You said all of yours were from the 80s. All of mine, but my last two are from 91, but the rest are all from the 80s. Okay. Okay. So I'm, we're pretty close on that. Yeah. I didn't know you were doing that, or I would have chosen well, I, all 80s as well. I almost went all 80s for part one, mm-hmm. um, but there were I, Whitney, um, they, they might be giants, and uh, the Fugees. Right. It kind of, you know, I, I sure. kept going back and forth. But this time, it, it wasn't anything that wasn't deliberate on my part it was just a way to cut down right. choices because I, I was having a hell of a time deciding what to use well I'm going to go with the cover of, uh, of one of Tom Petty's um, in my opinion one of his greatest singles one of my favorites um, and probably probably one of the greatest videos of the 1980s too do you remember the Mad Max inspired you got you got lucky from Tom Petty. I do not. I do not remember the video for that one. It's, at it all. starts out and and they're all draped in you know Mad Max type gear. Uh, there's sand everywhere. They, they're in the middle of a desert. It's been 30 years since I I remember watching it, but it's still pretty clear in my mind. And they go into this some type of structure, and there's all sorts of really old technology, and they're blowing dust off stuff. And then they they pull back this dust cover, and there's a, there's a car underneath it. It's like it's like a like if I remember correctly, almost like a kit car. It's like an electronic, oh, okay, decked out car. I don't remember past that, but I remember. <laughs> I thought it was really cool because videos at the time, um, you know, this is eighty two. I'm sorry, not eighty two. Uh, one was the original. Um, you got lucky. Maybe it was eighty two. Um, I think it was eighty two. That's fine. Yeah, it was eighty two. Um, yeah, it just seemed like it was later than then. So yeah, in eighty two, that's what the second year of MTV. Uh, most of the, I'd say at least half of the videos were just live performances, right? Or studio lip-synced performances. Uh, and the concept videos really were just kind of starting. We're going to talk about Billy Jean later. That was a huge one. Right? Oh, yeah. And, of course, then Billy Joel and, and Bruce Springsteen and Hugh Lewis, and they just had all sorts of conceptual videos. But this one, this is this predates all of those. Um, yeah, I am. Um, more like a mini film, you know, than a, than a video. Well, Tom Petty was always, I, he had some of the greatest videos. Oh, yeah. I, I think of... Don't come around here no more from '85. Oh, yeah. That to me is, you know, everyone everyone hails um, "Take on Me," mm-hmm. rightfully so. Sure, but for me, I would almost say "Don't Come Around Here No More" trumps it. I don't. I, I just loved the camera angles and the yeah. way that they played with textures, and I, yeah. you know, um, but I, yeah, I do not remember yeah, well, this video to you guys. I, I remember the song; it was yeah. on the radio constantly. But I, yeah. Well, let's jump thirty years into the future to 2012. Uh, where Gaslight Anthem, we've talked about Gaslight Anthem oh, yes. on the show a lot, the New Jersey Alternative Rockers recorded the song as a bonus track on the extended version of their fourth record, Handwritten.
Gaslight's version is not a huge departure from the original. I have some on here that are just night and day, right? This one isn't. Um, it's very much in the spirit of the original. But the grit in the guitars and the power of Brian Fallon's voice just moves this song into kind of a, I already said it before, a separate parallel universe that I think is equally satisfying to the original. Oh, yeah, I, I would agree. Um, Petty, you know, Petty's lyrics, they're very scornful, you know, yeah. on the song. But he, his voice doesn't necessarily um, show that, that aggression. Sure, sure. Um, Fallon yes. definitely does. So, oh, yeah. I mean, grit was the best word I could come up with. Just yeah, the, no. The I, distortion of the guitars. The, the, yeah. The, everything about it just is kind of gritty. Yeah, I, I know, like that. Grit works. Yeah, no, he just, he just sounds pissed yeah, yeah, when, yeah, when yeah. delivering the song and, 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 the, and the lyrics call for that absolutely yeah. that, that's the whole essence of you know the, the lyrical content well this is good news I think for you as well um, the band announced and uh, well this isn't the good news part but they, they announced an uh, indefinite hiatus in, in 2015 right, right? Um, Brian Fallon just felt like he needed a break from the band he felt like what he was writing wasn't right for the band and so he went on to uh, release four solo records since then Here's the, the, the good news. And, and, you know, there are some silver linings to COVID. Uh, and this is one of them. Uh, the band is, is reuniting. Yep. And um, the new record is slated actually end of this month. Uh, and it includes two tracks that have been pre-released. And one of them is a Include, duet with Bruce with, Springsteen. With so you know all this. Yep. Yes, yes, yep. yes. Uh, of course, uh, Bruce Springsteen, or at least Gaslight Anthem, is heavily compared to Springsteen uh, for a good reason. Uh, Brian Fallon and, and, and the band were big fans of his. And um, over the years, they've appeared together live, but they haven't actually recorded together. This is the first time. Yeah, that that was what was um, sorely lacking. I was really excited when I heard the the single for the first time. Um, yeah, they they performed together many times, mm -hmm. as you said. Um, Which no. you got to imagine for Brian Fallon is he? I mean, probably still not getting used to the fact uh, that right. the boss wow. is, is now a um, I, I consider a friend, right? He consider a friend because yeah. they they're. they're I've read a lot where they have been to their shows and just kind of pop up here and there together. So, yeah. and it's what you know, artists, young artists especially, when they meet their heroes, either it is life changing or it's the greatest disappointment right, right, of their life. Right? right? Usually, it's um, a disappointment. It, it is. You know, it's funny. I think back to to USA for Africa. Mm -hmm. The the video footage, you know, before, during, after. The recording here you have a list of every a-list a-list celebrity at the time and they were in awe of right. one another yeah. because they'd never met you know mm -hmm. some of them were, were their idols obviously um so yeah when you take a, a young band today and you throw them into the you know that opportunity it's you don't know what you get um springsteen though it's such a down dirt guy mm -hmm. um so i mean it, i could see him and their styles are so similar, especially from the Jersey area. So it's it's, it's something about Springsteen that's unique because usually people that are as perfectionists as the bosses, um, the amount of time he takes, how serious he takes his music. Usually, those artists have a tendency to be a little bit snobbish. Oh yeah, um, yeah. And I'm not trying to disparage. I'm going to throw out some names. I don't know. I've never met them. I don't know. If, but I get the impression that like a Donald Fagan. Yeah, you know, it's kind of like yeah, yeah you know, he, he's good and he knows it. Right. But 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 Springsteen has that same care in his music, but he's never demonstrated mm -mm. an air of superiority superiority over anyone else. Um, he's just so open to all different kinds of music. He never puts anything down. He embraces things that I'm just shocked. 
that that he listens to, and I just love that he's just open to everything. Yeah, well, it, it, you know, I remember the the MTV unplugged with Melissa Etheridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she said, you know, right there, she said, people ask, how did you get Bruce Springsteen to join you? And she said, I asked. Yes, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? exactly. So yeah, he's he's not uh, not at that elite, you know, that elitist. Yeah, mindset. Um, yeah, there there are quite a few. Like Sting is mm-hmm. another one yeah, that yeah, I, yeah. he always comes to mind. Um, Fagan, yeah, and Becker most definitely. But um, yeah, no, it's a great pick. I, I you know, and I, it wasn't even on my radar. I didn't even think of Gaslight Anthem and then their cover of Petty. Um, so no, I was really pleasantly surprised and, and happy that you included it here. So all right, you're up. Okay, uh, my number three song. Um, you're familiar with Jules Holland? Mm-hmm. Do you yeah. know the name? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, for those that may not, uh, we are on you know the other side of the pond. Um, he's an English pianist, band leader, singer, composer, and television presenter. And since 1992, he has hosted Later with Jules Holland, which is one of the UK's most iconic and longest-running TV shows focused solely on music. In fact, um, there used to be music station on cable that would pick that up. I used oh, really? to watch it a while ago. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I've, I've only seen a few episodes and it's yeah, I, good. Yeah. Uh, very, very good. 22 years into its run uh, and after spawning 14 compilation albums, um, later is, is kind of an institution. Um, and for that matter, you know, Jules Holland is, is like the face of music in the UK. Uh, they become something of a household name and, and, beyond um along with his world-renowned rhythm and blues orchestra uh jules has been responsible for dozens of contemporary music's impeccably arranged big band records um and he has collaborated with some of the biggest names in the industry jules holland has recorded and performed with seemingly everyone including sting eric clapton mark knopfler george harrison david gilmore ringo Starr, bono um the list just goes on and on in 2014, he, reinfer- he reinforced rather uh, that position as one of England's best collaborators with the release of an album titled Sirens of Song. Okay, uh, He assembled a cast of the finest female vocal talent on the planet, uh, quite frankly. Uh, Sirens of Songs paired classic material from artists as diverse as Ray Charles, uh, The Clash, and Cole Porter with all manner of female vocalists from Spice Girls' Mel C., to Soul Queen Joss Stone, to Rockabilly Revivalist Imelda May. Um, we've already established that Joss Stone and Imelda May are two of my favorite artists of the new millennium. Um, also on the album, uh, he, he had uh, the late, great Eartha Kitt and Amy Winehouse. I mean, it is just a phenomenal collection of talent. And there are so many incredible recordings on that album. I knew I wanted to use it for one of my picks, and it was very difficult for me to choose which one I wanted to include here especially given that so many of my favorites are present. Mm-hmm. But in the end, I felt that I had to go with a Gen Xer. <laughs> I had no choice because for me, the highlight on the album is by Kylie Minogue. And it is a cover of Should I Stay or Should I Go? to let me know. 
She is not a member of Gen Z. She is one of us, without question. Uh, her first hit was The Locomotion. I remember that video very clearly mm-hmm. on MTV. But should I stay or should I go? It just sounds utterly ridiculous in theory. I mean, you have Australia's Kylie Minogue singing arguably the song that birthed the entire genre of pop punk in an authentic New Orleans style with a hand-clapping gospel breakdown. That's awesome. Uh, you know, and, and But the results of this culture sampling experiment are just jaw-dropping and it is for me the highlight of the album as i said holland somehow manages to find that perfect blend of a music cocktail by inviting a global superstar into the holland studio to sing a jones and strummer clash punk classic you know so i I just i don't know I, i had to go with it it's unlike anything i've ever heard it's a nice pairing with lake street dive and their version of faith right before it um i don't know i, I just i love this version of should i stay or yeah should another I go? example of of just introducing it to a different genre yeah it's, awesome. it's oh it's wild yeah very good very good all right my next one may be my favorite on my list uh, i don't know i think it might be i might be and uh we're going to talk about brian adams first okay brian adams released heaven uh, as the third single off his chart-topping record, Reckless, in 1984. Uh, one of those mega records of the early 80s that produced multiple hit singles. Many, many. It went all the way to number one. In fact, um, I believe it was, um, oh, uh, what's his name? The famous producer that's worked with everybody, including uh, the boss, um, Jimmy Iovine. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I believe he um, was trying to talk... Um, Brian out of putting this on the record because he felt it was too much of a ballad. It didn't fit the rest of the songs. Um, Adams insisted on, on putting it on the record and it went to number one. Yeah. So I just love that. Jimmy's not always right. No. <laughs> well, the producer, yeah, I mean, producers, not we, t- we tend to defer. No, he's, he's got a great instinct. I won't take that away from him. But once in, you know, once in a while, this, a pop ballad from the 80s really gets me. So I'm not sure if I like this song so much because um, it's just that great of a song or just because it touches that nostalgia, right? This would have been about the time when we would have been going to the skatery and asking girls to couple dance and all those, you know, um, pre-adolescent, you know, emotions. Did we use the original on the couple skates? I, I believe episode? we did. I, yeah. I'm almost positive I, it, we did. It, Yeah. I, it, I've been very disappointed in myself if we didn't. Yeah, it sounds very... Um, um, so maybe I liked a girl when the song was in the radio or whatever, but, um, but it brings me back, right? It brings me back to my early adolescence. So now, jump ahead 25 years. And we have singer-songwriter Brandy Carlisle. Do you know Brandy Carlisle? I know Brandy She's Carlisle. Great. Yeah. She's so um, good. I, I do enjoy her music. My wife is a huge fan. Good. Good um, for her. She was the one that introduced me to, to Brandy. Um, oh, wow. Probably 10 years ago now. Um, and, and everything I've heard by Brandy Carlisle is just phenomenal. 
Well, Which, even before that, you know, I see the Indigo Girls any opportunity I have. And um, a lot of times they'll tour with an up-and-coming, you know, and, and they're all very, very good, but a lot you don't hear from, again. Brandi Carlile was one of them that opened up for the oh, Indigo wow. Girls. That early. And, and she played um, played with them. This would have been, you know, in the early 2000s. Okay. And so we, I think we saw her at least twice open up for Indigo Girls. Wow. And then all of a sudden she just takes over the world. So yeah. Well, you, cool. and, you and I saw her at the, that Rock Hall induction two yes. years ago. Yep, she, yep. she, um performed for the Everly Brothers yeah. uh, because uh, Phil or Don, I one had already passed, but the other had had passed away just before the induction ceremony. So she performed, was it All I Had to Do is Dream? That I think so. Yeah, 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 yeah. She's um, great. No, she's, she is. She's, she is top tier. Well, in 2010, she released a Valentine's, Valentine's-themed EP. Uh, I believe it was five songs. Two of them were covers. One was a Beatles cover, for, uh, All You Need is Love, mm. and the other is a cover of Brian Adams' Heaven. so simple it, it's it's a finger-picked acoustic guitar with a double-tracked vocal and it works mm-hmm. that that's all it is but when you have a, a someone with the talent that brandy carlisle has and what she can bring uh, not only in her guitar playing but in in her vocal um you don't need a lot you don't need a lot of fancy tricks no, that's right and i i think honestly i think it's it's stronger emotionally than the original um much more intimate and personal oh yeah than brian adams version so if I had to choose between the two, sorry, Brian, but I might have to go with Brandy Carlisle's version for this one. Yeah, understandable. I, I I feel like, you know, so many, and, and here's where a lot of my debate came in, choosing songs for this part two uh, mixtape. So many of the indie artists that cover Gen X tunes do it in a stripped bare bones mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very common. Um, that, it's, it's, it's almost a, it's, a trope. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is a trope. You know, they're all coffeehouse singers. They, mm-hmm. they, they, it's um, and especially the female vocalists. It's it's voice and guitar. I mean, right. that, that's all it is. So you know, it, when I went through my first, you know, list, it was so slow. <laughs> I had so many artists who were just, you know, and I love every one of them. Um, but it, it was one of those things I, I just couldn't bring myself to. to you know, load the the mixtape with, you know, acoustic ballad after ballad. Um, but this one, it most definitely, I mean, I'd be shameful not to include it. I mean, Brittany Carlisle, you're right, she is a giant. And her version, I, I think when you strip a, a ballad 
to its, you know, just the most simplistic form, I think it always becomes more intimate. Well, um, in this one, too, it wasn't like, like I've heard people take um, Britney Spears, Hit Me One More Time, right. and do a slow coffeehouse version of it. Yeah. There you're taking an up-tempo song and making it slow, which which is common. But But really, she doesn't mess with the genre very much no it's the same um, song it, yeah. it, it's not as poppy as as uh, brian adams arrangement but it um but she doesn't really mess with the tempo that much it's just uh what she brings to it with her playing with the, with a the guitar part that she um that she plays and with her vocal performance yeah now so since those early days like i mentioned um this, this is what she's done okay so her blend of americana folk rock and alternative country has earned her 25 grammy nominations and nine wins she recently started a side project with three other female artists called the High Woman, High Women, High Women. I, ha- I, I just marked their um, stuff on Spotify. I haven't had a chance to, to take, take a listen. Uh, but their, their debut album produced Crowded Table, which was the, the, the winner for Best Country Song, Best Country, yeah, the Grammy for Best Country Song of the Year in 2021. So that's how out of it I am with music. I don't watch the Grammys anymore. I had no idea she even had this side project. I had no idea that they won Country Record of the Year, which surprises me a little bit because, you know, she's kind of alternative country. Right. And I don't know if regular country, I don't know how much typical country embraces her because she is not a typical country artist. No, but, you know, so much of country today is not old school country music at all anymore. It's it's so pop driven now. I'm, I'm um, just thinking in terms of politics. Yeah. yeah. You know, because you have some, some liberal... The, the liberal country singers I can think of uh, Jennifer Nettles from, from Sugarland uh, uh, Dixie Chicks which are not just oh, the chicks yeah Natalie Maines Brenda Carlisle yeah. like that's why I feel like they're probably somewhat outsiders politically I'm I, not trying to peg everybody in Nashville no. as being yeah. right wing I'm just saying it, it doesn't go with the the stereotype and that's good I like the fact that we have country music that doesn't fit that Nashville stereotype yeah no well, and, you know it, you gotta be careful stereotyping I mean I've I, I I firsthand know a conserv a a a conservative genre. We we expect you know it to be very very dominant uh, from the Republican you know views uh, at at hand. But I, I know one very very renowned songwriter in Nashville who's not at all your cousin. You know, your cousin, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Even I, Garth Brooks, right, has gotten crap yeah, for, for yeah, being progressive. So. Yeah, Garth is is a progressive, uh, most definitely. But yeah, think about when the Dixie Chicks came out politically and they, what happened to them. I mean, that was before canc- canceling was the thing, but they were uh, essentially canceled from, from the country community. Oh, and they were, yeah. The radio stations just banned them outright. Right. Um, which, uh, it's, you know, part of the problem there, though, is that radio has turned into such a corporate uh, entity. Yeah. You know, iHeartRadio owns very nearly every station in the country so it, you're you're really trying to walk a fine line with your politics if you don't agree with you know the corporate well that's the thing view, if you, so. you know you, Bud Lake make, makes one can <laughs> I know right for one influencer and they lose half of their revenue it because was, of a boycott yeah, it is ridiculous it wasn't even like they released the can out to the stores with this personality on it but just for that particular influencer one custom can and they lose like half of yeah. they had to lay off a ton of workers. Oh, I know. Yeah, the it's entire ridiculous. country went 
Now, now I have no problem with people voting Nuts. with their pocketbook because I think that's. I mean, I don't like government interfering. What DeSantis is doing, I don't know how we got in politics here, but I don't know what DeSantis is doing in Florida um, is not something. I, I think there should be a separation. Right? Oh, yeah, uh, and people should be able to vote with their pocketbook. I just think it's it, it bothers me that so many people feel this way. That this is something that they would be upset at with in the first place, but that they would give up their favorite beer because of it. Yeah, it's really strange to me. Anyway. Done. Oh, yeah, I, that was my soapbox. Yeah, I'm no, we, we definitely had to stop because now I want to <laughs> now I want to talk Disney. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it. Uh, I, I don't know. It's it's crazy. But the alt country movement, you know, I for a brief period in the '90s, I got into some country. Um, I love the outlaw country. I, mm-hmm. I can listen to '70s, you know, and and to some extent, you know, the the '80s crossover hits, Dolly Parton, Eddie Rabbit. But I've never been a huge country fan. But alt country. Mm-hmm. Is not country. Alt country is just a. It, it's it has that seventies feel to it, and it, it's just very. I, I don't know. It, it's just such a joy. Everything and, from Wilco to, to yeah. Ryan Adams to um, you know Blue Rodeo, right? Uh, Uncle Tupelo, oh, Bottle list, Rockets. Yeah, the last the, the list is long. Really, really good alt country stuff. Yeah. So now, and Brandy Carla. See, I don't consider her alt country necessarily. Anyway, I would consider her just. I mean, Americana is an umbrella. It is. Yeah, it fits everything. But she she dabbles in all of those. She she does. Um, to me, she's folk rock yeah. primarily. Oh yeah, but, um, Okay, no, I definitely. I, if we didn't have Brandy here, it, it would have been, you know, uh, you would have had to question the validity of <laughs> what, what we're doing. Um, all right, so my number four. Um, I'm really excited about this one, actually. It's it's a cover of Fleetwood Mac's 1987 hit single, Everywhere, by the synth-pop duo Prism. Prism, I'll be honest, I knew nothing about them. Um, that you know, this is this reminded me of our Uncharted episodes. This is an Uncharted episode in in so many ways, because a lot of these bands that I've picked, they're so new that there's no information about them on mm-hmm. online. Um, it took me a while to find out who Prism is. Uh, they are a Fort Worth based synth pop duo comprised of Danny James and Chris Williams. Now, those names are androgynous. These are two girls, okay, mm-hmm. two ladies, Danny James and Chris Williams, uh, who found one another online through mutual Facebook friends in 2010. And both were in their 20s at the time when Williams invited James to jam, and, and they haven't stopped since. Um, the funny story, though, is that upon meeting one another, they discovered that they had grown up in the same Fort Worth neighborhood, just two blocks away from one another. And 
As it turns out, they were both inspired by 90s punk pop sensation Avril Lavigne to pick up a guitar in the same year. Uh, although Danny was 15 and Chris was 13 at the time. There's a two-year uh, age difference between the two. In an interview with the Dallas Observer, Williams said that after high school, I spent a lot of time writing and playing shows and trying to find a way to pursue my passion. But after Danny and I met, it was so kismet, is what she said. So it was that in 2012, they channeled their kismet kinship into a musical duo, and they began performing indie pop music taking gigs wherever they could find them, under the stage name Danny and Chris. Nothing original there. Soon after, the pair formed a Fleetwood Mac tribute band by the name of Little Lies. And they also began a foray into folk rock. But around that same time, they also debuted a new original project called Prism. Okay, They continued writing and performing as Danny and Chris, and the, the Fleetwood Mac tribute was... Ongoing, Prism ran parallel to all of that. These two ladies were performing every night of the week for almost two years without break, transitioning from the two of them by name, a cover band, a Fleetwood Mac uh, on the same song, not on the same, not same day, but I mean, just one after the other. Sure, and and to me, it's just mind blowing that they are that. They were able to well, and, make money, and they still are <laughs> right. doing this. In fact, you can if you. <laughs> I looked it up. If we want to, we can hire Danny and Chris to perform for us in their acoustic, right. uh, you know, duo. Um, it's right here, gigs gigsalad.com. Of course, they only travel within two hundred miles. So, where are they based? Uh, they're Fort Worth. Okay, Fort, Fort Worth, yeah. Texas. Uh, it says they'll, they'll travel up to two hundred <laughs> miles. Contact for rates. Acoustic band. Uh, so, and the last review, uh, the last review of them performing came from April 6, twenty twenty three. So, you can still hire these two to come and perform, but they I, they do not do it in their prism. Uh, gotcha. Personas, um, but here's the thing: from all that I can tell, the ladies can do anything. I mean, they, they genuinely, they, they genre hop like mad. Um, the concept of Prism, though, actually is credited to their manager, Jeffrey Rockwell. Uh, he wanted to manage a retro wave band. And the duo thought it sounded fun, so they agreed to give it a go, even though neither of them had ever even heard of retro wave or synth wave before signing onto the project. Um, but... That didn't deter them. They, they began writing and were soon recording singles, seamlessly adapting to this unfamiliar genre. And thanks to an agreement with a Fort Worth licensing company called Music Bed, where worldwide companies can buy their music for commercial use, uh, their Prism releases began to pop up everywhere, from mega churches to marketing videos, even a, a Sephora ad. But it wasn't until they received an endorsement from Paris Hilton, who had used their song All Night in a birthday video recap, did the two realize that they were really onto something special? In 2019, they released a self-titled, can't speak today, a self-titled EP through independent synthwave label Fixed, spelled F-I-X-T, Fixed Neon, and listeners were hooked. The success of the EP was followed by a series of brand new singles in, the, in late 2019 into early 2020, and it culminated in the group's highly anticipated first full-length album titled All Night the Deluxe Edition. 
The album is just an 80s throwback of dance anthems. I mean, each track laced with the group's colorful synth melodies and memorable vocal hooks. It sounds, every, every, single, every, every single song on the album sounds as though it came out 40 years ago. And they, they are the 80s, you know, they just personified, quite frankly. According to Williams, the reason they love singing on these songs is because it's more vocally challenging than their other projects. She says they hit a lot of high notes, their ad-libs and harmonies. She said it really pushes them as singers. So I don't know if, um, you know, they're going to continue performing um, in their acoustic duo form for much longer because Prism is, is it's broken. I mean, it, it is... It has actually garnered much attention, and they are rising stars. I, I don't even know that the Fleetwood Mac cover band still exists, but I am genuinely hooked on Prism. And clearly, their love of Fleetwood Mac, though, still rings true, because it is a cover of Fleetwood Mac that I've brought uh, to the table here. They've actually released three covers uh, by Fleetwood Mac so far. Um, I'm trying to think. Go, uh, Go Your Own Way, Everywhere, and Don't Stop, I believe, are the three that they've released. And, of course, Don't Stop is the only one I could use of them going all 80s. But, yeah, I, I love these these ladies. I can't get enough of their sound. Awesome. So, yeah, great. I love just how we keep discovering uh, new talent. Yeah. So. All right, my next pick um, is probably what you were describing, um, kind of mellowing things out, so I probably shouldn't put these two back-to-back. But... Um, we don't have to put them together on the on the mixtape. This is um, this is Billie Jean. <laughs> um, when Michael Jackson appeared on Motown's 25th anniversary TV special, he forever changed pop culture when he moonwalked across the stage to his current single, Billie Jean. Since then, the song has been canonized on most top 100 songs of all time lists, and will always compete with the likes of Beat It and Thriller as the artist's trademark song. Jump ahead to 2011 where Americana duo The Civil Wars covers the song as a folk number. Strangely enough, I think at least, it works. Yesterday by the Beatles. Sure. Everybody has covered Billie Jean. For me, Chris Cornell's very bluesy yeah, that's version. A good one. Yeah. That, that's the one I would go for first. But several words, it's it's a great track, and their their two part harmonies are just 
chilling. The so. other ones I've listened, even Chris Cornell's, if I remember correctly, um, are not as much of a departure. Well, Chris Cornell, it's it's very slow, yeah, um, very gritty, um, yeah, very guess, soulful. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Um, in fact, it, I would say it's more aligned with Civil War okay. than it is Billy yeah. than it is okay. with Michael That's Jackson. True. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, it originally appeared as a bonus track for the European edition of their debut album, Barton Hollow. I think we featured that not too long ago. Yep, that, they were one of my Uncharted picks. Later in 2013, the duo performed their cover on their VH1 Unplugged special. I don't remember VH1 Unplugged. I remember MTV Unplugged, I of course. I didn't, didn't even know VH1 had. Yeah, yeah well, no. News to me. The song is about as minimalist as you can get, which I already established sometimes I really like. Um, just a single guitar beneath the intertwining voices of Joy Williams and John Paul White. The chemistry that these two have is something special. Uh, even listeners who may not like the original, I think, will find something to love in this vocal performance. And this goes back to the top of the, of the broadcast where you mentioned why even perform a cover. Right. Here's a perfect example. Um, I know a lot of people that don't like you know, 80s pop music um, but, are, but are more folky-centered. And, and this is something I think they yeah. would dig. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Unfortunately, the duo called it quits in, in 2014. Uh, as Williams and White each moved on to other projects and solo careers. But we did get two solo albums, or sorry, two studio albums, and several live albums, and, well, frankly, that's going to have to be enough. Yeah. And it's one of those, uh, they just, and they've been very private about why they broke up. So if there's any, you know, if there was a rift between the two of them, they they weren't a couple. They weren't romantically involved or anything of that nature. If there was a rift between them, they've been very respectful and very kind uh, yeah, I just spe- think speaking they had other of each other, to do. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah. Um, yeah, they they just moved on to the next project. But I, um, it is a shame because I would have loved to have had a, a, a larger catalog of their their music. So this is one, and I suppose you could put it in the same category as taking Britney Spears and you know doing a doing a slow version of it. But to me, it's not gimmicky because some of those can be gimmicky. It's the it's the it's in the, I, I'm, this applies for any um, Civil Wars songs, but just the intertwining of those two voices. They just work. The chemistry is so profound with the two of them. Yeah. And I think that's what really makes this special, uh, where he's kind of a, a constant and she's kind of looping around, in and around where he's singing, and it's just it's just beautiful. Yeah, and it, it almost, you know, their version to me kind of, it almost feels improvised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in its delivery, especially it's, it's, her her part, because yeah. when she comes in, it's not consistent. Um yeah. To the the verses or the or the chorus, right. it's more of a. She does it by, just the feel. That's why I say she's know. kind of floating around what he's right. doing, and that's yeah. what I like. Yeah, she just wafts uh, yep. very very much like she's just on. Like they on, didn't spend a lot of time arranging it. Yeah, they just kind of went where they felt it yeah. should go, and it, it works. It I works think so. incredibly well. Um, yeah, I well, and I love, you know, I love when you have a male and a female voice that can harmonize so perfectly I, that's one of the reasons that I just I, I, I'm so you know obsessed with um, Robert Plant and, and Alison Krauss mm-hmm, yeah. because the two of them they do they do the exact same thing I mean, they get passed for siblings I mean it, it's two artists coming from very different genres who when they sing together it works it, it yeah. works it's, it's magical uh, the Civil Wars always had that um, you know that inherent ability and then the craft that they, you know, the what what music they pr- 
produced together. It was just, uh, it was unlike anything else that has come before or after. So it is sad that they they are no longer together. Okay, well, this one is probably the most wild of all of my 12 choices. Um, I say wild because I don't think anybody ever saw this coming. Um, for those who may not have heard of them, let me introduce you to the bird and the bee. Okay. Uh, now, stylized, when written, that's all lowercase. Did we, didn't we already feature one of the bird and the bee? I think we did. I don't remember. I thought we did. Doing anyway, that. Um, I it, thought I chose one of theirs for the... Um, did you? Uncharted. I thought so. Okay. Mm-hmm. Have to go back. I don't I don't remember. Um, well, even still, we picked up some new listeners, so I, I just... Yeah, yeah. Just to, just to give you some background here. Um, they're an American indie pop musical duo from L.A., uh, consisting of Inara George, she's the bird, and Greg Kirsten, he would be the bee. Uh, they met while the two were working on her debut album, and at the time they decided to collaborate on a jazz-influenced electropop project. Uh, their debut EP, titled Again and Again and Again and Again, it's just fun to say, was released in 2006, followed by their self-titled debut album in 2007. Now, they're grounded equally in, in clever new wave pop and space-age bachelor pad swing. Uh, the pair draw from both genres to create this unique jazz pop sound that's unlike anything on the radio today. They introduce themselves, as I said, with the aforementioned albums of original material uh, on the Blue Note label. But it was not until the 2010 release of Interpreting the Masters Volume 1, a tribute to Daryl Hall and John Oates, that they hit it big with a wider audience. Now, I know you had Maneater on your short list for this episode at one time, and I asked you to remove it because I really wanted that, to include... That was probably... Is that yes, what you were thinking? What thinking yeah. yeah, I asked you to remove it because I wanted to include this track, which I still have not introduced. I know that. Um, I don't regret asking you to, to remove Maneater, but it, it too, would have been a an incredible inclusion on this mixtape. Uh, in fact, I'm, I'm just a detour for a minute. Have you heard the full album? Uh, no, I have not. Masters mm-hmm. one. Okay, because Maneater is the the lone song. If it's the lone song title you're familiar with, um, you, you picked well <laughs> because it's the highlight of the album. Um, but you know, I I've been a fan of the Bird and the Beast since their debut. I I don't think it's any secret now to anyone that listens to our podcast that I love jazz. Um, but I had to admit, I was really dubious when I heard they were releasing a cover album made of Hall & Oates' most celebrated works. Um, I was worried that the tribute would be kitschy, ironic, and insincere. I don't know how it happened, but Hall & Oates, for a very long time, fell into this embarrassed uh, fan base. Well, a guilty pleasure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. During the 90s and 2000s, you definitely had to pull the yeah. guilty pleasure card. Yeah, and, and I... I you know, it's it's really a shame that that happened because they, their blue-eyed soul. Well, you can see the transition. Their '70s work is nothing like the '80s synth. You know, and that's pa- the problem. It, you know, it, hit machine. The '80s synth on some of the songs, like "Private Eyes," makes it sound a little dated because that synth sound only stuck around for about ten years. Right. Um, but the songwriting's great. Yeah. No, and and always has been for the two of them. Um, but yeah, the embarrassment, it seems to have gone the way of Oates' mustache uh, because now the Hall and Oates are fashionable and, and trending. I mean, I think 500 Days of Summer was the first to really, you know, bring them back with that, you know, um, 
street dance that that is performed in the film. Um, but nonetheless, I, I was afraid that the bird and the bee were going to be ironically uh, reverent, if you will, uh, of the of the two. You know, possibly just irreverent in their um, tribute. And they weren't at all. Um, I was relieved that the duo approached the project with finesse and respect. They, they kind of brought Holland Oates into the now with a light feminine makeover. I never really should have questioned their intent. Um, in fact, what was really cool is they really um, kind of, uh, they dialed down the 80s cheese and they amped up today's retro 80s cheese <laughs> when they made that album. So it, it actually, it worked incredibly well. Um, but as doubtful as I was about their tribute to Hollow Notes in Volume 1, I was even more skeptical of their choice for interpreting the Masters Volume 2. Because for that album, the sequel, they decided to do tribute, to pay tribute to Van Halen. Okay? And I just could not wrap my head around it. How can you possibly cover Van Halen without a guitar? Because there's no guitar on this album. Um, I should have had more faith because The Bird and the Bee do it exceptionally well. Um, Interpreting the Masters Volume 2, a tribute to Van Halen. If you're unfamiliar with the album, you've never seen it, you've never heard it, um, it focuses entirely on the Roth years, okay? Which makes sense emotionally. I I think it makes sense. The, The first Roth Van Halen epic is what captured the attention of so many, anyway. I mean, it, it, when I think 80s, I think Roth. I don't think Hagar. I mean, Hagar takes them into the 90s, and, you know... Well, 86 was OU... Um, right. Not OU, it went to... What am I thinking? Um, no. 5150. Um, 5150. Was yeah. like 86 or 87, yeah. yeah. Which, and to me, you know, the 80s is so weird. We we lived through the entirety of the decade, right? We, we graduated high school in 91, so we were... You know, you'd think that I was more acclimated to the late 80s, musically, but to me, when I think 80s, it is everything pre-85. Well, not 85, pre-86, 87. When we get to 86 and 87, to me, the 80s, the music just shifts mm-hmm. incredibly. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, if you're really going to pay tribute to the 80s, and I think of all, all of the popular, the zeitgeist right now, what they present is all early to mid-80s. And they never, stranger things, even as the kids have grown, they're still not you know embracing you know the culture of 1989 it's it's not a it's just not a thing in the same way um plus uh, i think a lot of the big hits of the hagar era they're keyboard heavy which probably made you know the work of translating those songs less interesting to the bird and the bee perhaps i don't know although um, van halen uh, van early roth van halen Use keyboards. They I mean, look, at, look at jump. I mean, oh yeah, the, yeah, they're they're definitely the present. The In fact, um, you know, people often forget. Some people never knew that Eddie Van Halen began his musical career as a classically trained pianist. Hmm. Did not know that. Yeah, uh, so his musical DNA is keyboard derived, uh, even as he avoided the instrument for the early part of his career. So here we have the bird and the bee extracting something from the music that's present, but not necessarily explicit. It's kind of like a musical excavation. Um, then again, it also probably should not be a surprise if you know the bird and the bee that they focused entirely on Roth because they have an original song uh, from their 2009 album, Ray Guns Are Not Just For The Future. It's the title of the album. They recorded a song, wrote and re- recorded a song titled Diamond Dave, 
which itself is a, uh, in in many ways, a shout out, a, a tribute to uh, David Lee Roth himself. Um, so it shouldn't be so surprising, I guess, that Hagar's uh, contributions are absent from this tribute. Um, in fact, they bring Diamond Dave back for Volume Two, covering their own song to round out their Van Halen tribute album. Um, since the coverers and the coverees come from very different musical genres, the, the pairing is a compelling one, because replacing Van Halen's heavy electric guitar with a mixture of synths and more traditional piano, and then changing the original vocal style from, from gravelly rock to smoother and sultry jazz vibes, the Bird and the Bee kind of create another instant classic tribute album. It's just, it's uncanny. Um, and... That solo, Eddie's solo at the beginning of the song, I haven't introduced the song yet. My choice is Hot for Teacher. All right, there we go. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm turning into you, Dave. Uh, yeah, I, I chose Hot for Teacher, which is an entirely different song when narrated from the female perspective. Sure. It, it just, it changes the entire song. Kirsten, he um, he is a he's he's trained um, in classical and jazz piano, um, and jazz is his forte. So he takes the the solo by Eddie there at the beginning of Hot for Teacher, and he note for note, almost note for note, he does it on the keys. Huh. But he also changes the chord. Uh, the chords a bit. He, he plays with the chords and he adds a, a jazz element to this solo that that mirrors Eddie's, you know, in, in tempo and, and um, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, he was asked about it, actually, um, by Variety Magazine. He told Variety, I have a jazz background. I've done a lot of jazz improvisation. So being able to use that and interpret what Eddie did on guitar on different keyboards was really a fun challenge. He said, Hot for Teacher is all about the riff and about the drum part and the drive of the tempo. He said, I wanted to keep that sort of drive, but then also bring in an element of jazz 
because there is a kind of swing feel to the whole thing. He said it reminded him of 70s jazz fusion in many ways. And he called upon uh, Billy Cobham's very influential 1973 album, Spectrum, as an example. He said he wanted to sort of reference some of the roots of where he thought Eddie Van Halen's song came from, which he said was very much like Billy Cobham on drums and Jan Hammer. I'm sure people know Jan Hammer, Jan Xers, you know, Miami Vice theme. He said Jan Hammer on synthesizer. He said stuff like that is, you know, just fun to play with. And then he, he also continued, he said, one of the things that brought Inara and I together in the first place was an appreciation for pop songs that had sort of a jazz element to them. He said, whether it was Burt Bacharach or Brian Wilson, all these people grew up listening to jazz, then made pop music, and they would fit some of those more complex chords into the pop music they created. He said, what makes doing covers fun is not just doing a straight cover. He said... His favorite covers um, that have happened over the history of time have always been the ones where they've just reinvented the song. What do you think is his favorite cover of all time? You used it for part one. What? Satisfaction by Devo. Oh, really? Yeah. He credits that as the greatest and his most favorite uh, cover ever ever written. He said um, the second reason that he, he wanted to do this, he said he could play guitar, but he said he would never be able to match Eddie's prowess. The keys are his, his talent, and he said it only made sense to stay with what he knew. He said that he was in junior high when he was introduced to Van Halen. He learned how to play Van Halen songs on the keys, so that's what that's what he chose to do. Now, my second reason, not the first reason was simply the jazz influence. My second reason for choosing this track was Mr. Goodbody, okay? Because in this uh, version, the teacher actually plays a part. I mean, the teacher actually has a spoken bit that um, kind of weaves in and out of Inara's um, lyrics, you know, the, the David Lee Roth lyrics that we're all familiar with. The bird and the bee may be hot for Van Halen, but Inara George's schoolgirl character truly has the hots for Beck because the teacher, Mr. Goodbody, is voiced by Beck. Interesting. Who walked into the studio and quickly improvised the entirety of his spoken word bit off the cuff and I'm sorry when you hear this song you'll understand I am for being uh, I, I, I don't adult well I'm still a big kid and I can't help but laugh at the juvenile humor of this song as, as it's uh, performed by the bird and the bee paired with George's tongue in cheek narrative and her schoolgirl squeals um, Mr. Goodbody's attempt to teach Moby Dick uh, beginning on page 69. I mean, it just, I I laugh like a, a damn middle schooler. I, I can't help myself. And here's the fun of it, though, is that the song, I said it, it the, the gender swap, it, it does change the song considerably. Da- what what David Lee Roth uh, performs in the original, I mean, without question, are catcalls and, and borderline harassment, you know. Um, all of that is removed um, for this cover, and you instead have Anara's innocent excitement. I mean, it's a very innocent uh, portrayal. Um, and it's, as I said, I mean, it's 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 respectfully, very tastefully done. There's nothing dirty about the song, but it, but it's you know, it, the thematic content has not changed. I'll leave it at that. But I can't help myself. I I love this cover, and I think this is probably the one that is going to get the the 
most varied response from our listeners if they if they listen to the the playlist that we create. What was your take on this? I, I just like you said it perfectly. Yeah. 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 It, I can't add anything to that. Yeah. It, it is just like I said, Man Eater would have been fantastic. In fact, that's another one that you know performed by a female singing that line. I know, look out, boy, she'll chew you up, like a warning. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have um, Shirley, um, what's her name? Shirley Manson, um, lead from vocalist Garbage. from yeah. Garbage. She's the one on Maneater that sings, ooh, here, he, here she comes. Mm-hmm. She's doing the background vocals on that particular uh, track. So, it, it, you know, Maneater is fantastic too. But yeah, I from the beginning, this is one of the songs that never left my list. I knew doing a covers uh a covers part two that the bird and the bee is hot for teacher. It was going to make the list. So hopefully they'll enjoy hearing Great choice. It. That song is typified. <laughs> what am I trying to say? Exemplifies the reason why we're doing this show. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. All right. My next one is a cover of another early 80s song. I, I prefer, in fact, you said, you know, how the early and late eighties are different. I actually think that musically, as far as the latter half of the of the twentieth century, it's the, the the genres change more in the middle of the decade than at the end. Oh, I agree. So think about the mid fifties is when rock and roll takes over. Yeah. The mid sixties is when we go from bubblegum and boy bands and to politi- surf music political to political movements rock and, and, and yeah. harder rock. Um, the eighties, the seventies, maybe not so much, but still, you have a distinction because the seventies well, was the disco era. Well, the, yeah, the yeah, 70s. there you go. Late seventies, early seventies. A lot of what happened there, people associate with the sixties, right? A lot of the the, the um, bell bottoms and the Brady Bunch and that stuff spilled over into the seventies, right? And so, I think it's, and then we already mentioned the eighties. So, I think it's more accurate to look at the kind of for whatever reason things seem to change mid decade than they do. At the end or no, beginning, you're right, and and in the '90s you see it. The '90s almost felt like a de-evolution, though, in some ways, um, because there was such an emphasis on the boy bands right. and the, the the female teen idols. I mean, Christina and that was Brittany. It was, yeah, and of course, you also had the the indoctrination of hip hop culture mm-hmm. in the mid '90s because today on the radio, I mean, it's hip hop is you know. Well, that's that's the form of popular music. Yeah, that today. is popular music today, right, right. which a lot of you know rock and rollers get very upset about. I would like to remind them that rock and roll was the exact same thing. <laughs> right. It was black artists, yeah. you know, infiltrating white pop radio. Sure. Um, so yeah, hip hop in itself is you know a very nice callback to you know music that we the white people I have basically culturally appropriated. appropriated right. <laughs> so, um, but yeah. You know that that combination of the teen idols and the boy bands and the the hip hop um, culture, yeah, the mid mid to late nineties again. It's a shift. So you're you're right. I've I've never really thought about that before, but that's that's really insightful. Yeah, no, I, I thought about it the other day when someone mentioned something about the sixties and and I noticed uh, it was either fashion or something, and it was really 70, 72 or seventy three. It wasn't even sixties, but but that oh, right. Woodstock culture, which was at the very end. Um, of the 60s. I mean, Summer of Love was 68, but the, but that spilled over into the early 70s before disco took over right. in 76. All right, so, well, you have the Arrhythmics. Arrhythmics leaped onto, into commercial success oh. with the release of their single, Sweet Dreams Are Made of This. I love this cover. Do you? Good, oh. good. Because I, I kind of picked it for you. I, 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 I kind of picked it for you. I knew that. <laughs> I literally, 
I, I started playing it, and Gail just looked right at me and said, <laughs> he put this on there for you. Totally. <laughs> totally. Her words, exactly. The uh, Eurythmists took their song Sweet Dreams all the way to number one um, with uh, help from the video, which played heavily on MTV. Do you remember that video? Oh, yes. Very, very So well. Annie Lennox had this black suit, and she had this really cropped, bright orange hair. She, I think, literally projected this this power oh. of, of a female artist that had not been seen before mm-hmm. in popular music. Uh, and I think it just opened up a new world for women in the 80s. And you really did see mm-hmm. um, a lot more women artists appear in the 80s and, of course, later in the 90s, a lot more. Oh, yeah. Um, but but there was something kind of feminist about oh. that fashion statement Very, and, and, that she made in that video. Yeah, and, and frankly, I mean, it was both scary you know I'm remembering my teenage mindset oh yeah it was creepy it it was creepy but it was also undeniably sexy too I mean there was she had almost I mean there was nothing sexual about her portrayal but but but, but she had that domineering a strong woman is is, is very attractive to me yeah oh I likewise yeah and I remember she had those very exaggerated arm movements too in the the black uh, yeah yeah it was a great video one of the bands that got it I mean there were hundreds of bands um, in New Wave. Yeah. But the bands that kind of got the visual element of MTV, mm-hmm. Devo, right? Uh, d- obviously did. Talking Heads Talking is heads. another one. Um, when, when these bands understood that, that their art can expand beyond the audio yeah. into the video realm, those are the ones that floated to the top, you know? So, jump to 2012 when uh, New Orleans, by the way, you said you haven't been in New Orleans yet? No. Gail um, and I are looking at it for next summer. Did I ever describe Bourbon Street to you before? This is my famous, uh-huh. uh, this is my description. And you, when you get there, you realize I'm not exaggerating at all. So you have Bourbon Street, and you have a five-star hotel. Next to it is a porn shop. Then you have a five-star restaurant, another porn shop. Then you have a, a bar with some great music. Then you have a porn shop. So it's 1970s Manhattan. It's it, <laughs> it, what you're telling me. I mean, um, the districts are not well-defined as, as in okay. other cities. And it was really shocking to me that you would have these famous, like Brennan's is a famous um, um, restaurant. We had brunch there. And we're talking, you know, mm. just top, top tier right next to a porn shop. <laughs> that's that's anyway. too funny. Anyway, so New Orleans uh, eight-piece brass ensemble, The Soul Rebels, covered this song with their brand of soul, funk, and pop music. track of course features synthesizers that create this multi-layered riff that carries the song and if you've ever listened to the original there's a lot going on there um oh yeah there are several keyboard parts that are working together the soul rebels replace those keyboard parts with various brass instruments (laughs) yes they do now some listeners may feel that their arrangement sounds a little marching bandish yeah i can see that Kind of like tusk with with leewood mac yeah um 
especially in the verses, not so much in the chorus, I think. Um, but I don't mind it again because the brass, in, the various brass instruments, which of course all sound a little bit different, really highlight the differences and the different layers of that riff that was written by Dave Stewart and Annie Lennox mm-hmm. in the original song. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like completely. it really highlights that. Um, so yeah, it may sound a little marching band to some people, but when that sax solo comes in, that is all jazz. It is. That is all jazz. It there. most definitely is. And uh, yeah, and, and I'd say even this song is maybe a little more more jazzy over soul. That that soul mm-hmm. is there definitely. Um, described by the Village Voice as the missing link between Public Enemy and Louis Armstrong. <laughs> that is such a great description. <laughs> it actually. is the Soul Rebels. Yeah, they describe uh, Public Enemy and Louis Armstrong. Interesting. Um, this, the Soul Rebels perform about 250 shows each year. You just got done talking about how uh, Prism um, right. is still working quite a bit. Um, yeah, they're, they're pretty much working almost every night. Wow. And have played with a who's who of artists of all genres. So this is one of those bands that people in the music business are very familiar with. And they've played with all sorts of people, you know, every single genre. But just haven't hit that commercial success. Sounds a lot like, like Muscle Shoals yeah, as an yeah, example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And um, it's interesting, too, because in 2011, Metallica, Metallica was so impressed with the band that they asked them to open for four shows. They had an anniversary uh, show in San Francisco that year, and Soul Rebels opened up for Metallica. Okay, now, two thoughts on that. First, that is really, really cool that Metallica would be a fan of what they're doing musically. Right. Number two... I'm not sure that Metallica's fans <laughs> yeah. were all that excited by... But when you're as big as Metallica, it doesn't... No, it doesn't. Not that they don't want to please their fans, right. but I think it's cool that they're trying to introduce yeah. their fans to do but, stuff. But I'm just imagining, you know, metalheads listening to brass soul on the... I don't know. Maybe it went over well. And I don't know um, the Soul Rebels um, very much. I don't know what their original stuff's like, um, but... I had never heard of perhaps that. Perhaps they, they just took different metal songs and arranged them. Well, that's possible. The fans might have liked that. That's possible. Yeah, yeah and I, I had never heard of these guys. And it, it was... The list that you gave me was the first track, um, you know, in the in the order you had presented them. Right. And I'm a lyrics guy, right? I was so into this song that when they began singing... I was a little <laughs> disappointed. Dis- I was a little disgruntled. I, I would I, I would have been perfectly content had this been entirely instrumental. Yeah, yeah. Because what they were doing, it was so layered and so I just so textured that yep. yeah, I was loving every minute of it. So here's a cover I think highlights the genius of the original track. Yeah. Oh yeah. They they've moved Definitely. it to a different genre. They've had fun with it. They've respected the tune, but it also highlights the strength. Of, of the original as well. Mm-hmm. So it's a compliment. Yeah, and you know, everything I said about Lake Street Dive and their, their take on Faith is an example. This, when you said like a marching band, this is again that New Orleans sound yeah. parading through the streets. Yep. What, what I imagine lining up, you know, on Bourbon Street. Yeah, it's definitely on my bucket list and we're talking possibly next year. I've already been to Beale Street. Mm, Beale yeah. Street in Memphis was, oh, it was a dream come true. I'm ready for Bourbon Street. We stayed so. up. We, we were down there for Halloween. Oh, that would be so... So everybody was in costume, which was really cool. And we stayed out pretty much all night till, till the, sweet, the, the street sweepers come in. Because every night, about four, in the, four or five in the morning, 
they just bring these uh, street sweepers in and they just hose Bourbon Street down and then they start over again every day. Was it you and Barry? Did no, no, I went down for the, with a conference. Um, oh, actually, so. with a bunch of teachers. Um, this, <laughs> this was back in the nineties. Okay, um, that we went down for it was a, it was an Pre- Apple, Apple conference pre Katrina. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so yeah. you it was yeah. a different city even. Yep. In that respect. Yep. Yeah. No, my true bucket list. I mean, this is this is top three is Mardi Gras. But being an educator that is not on a year-round schedule, you know, I have at least minimum what three three more years before I can experience that if I want to leave with minimal, you know, benefits. Sure. Um, retirement is still more likely five to seven away. But um, no, I just want to go to. It doesn't matter to me what season. I just New Orleans to me just is the representation. I mean, I've heard people say it is, it's the Paris of, of the United States. Well, it is, and this is you not going to be a surprise to anybody, but the food there is just oh, yeah. incredible. Yeah. Maybe the best food I've ever eaten. Yeah. No, I can't wait. Cannot wait. I've, I've been to so many of the you know, most culturally significant cities in the United States. New Orleans and Seattle are really the only two on my list that I, I just, I've never, I still have not visited so it was a good trip it was a week-long trip we went to the conference during the day oh uh, this is how early it was uh, you had to stand in line for in a kiosk to use email <laughs> oh wow okay. no wi-fi did not exist and so they had these public kiosks at the at the convention almost like phone booths right and you had to, to wait in line to check your email so that's how long ago uh, wow. but i did i did not only did i get to eat at brennan's and the quarter two sisters and just um uh mothers which is jambalaya like you've never had but it's also the real life soup nazi like you have to, oh really yeah you have to line up a certain way against the wall um to get everybody in through lunch but the jambalaya is incredible pictures of every celebrity you can imagine on the wall that's eaten there huh. um but i also got to see the tragically hip play at house of blues in new orleans too oh and that was really cool awesome oh and we went uh, gambling on a on, in the, on the mississippi in a, in oh, a riverboat on the riverboat so we used our our free time in the evenings uh, quite well <sighs> The perks of being an educator. <laughs> I've never had such perks, but but nonetheless, that's that's very cool. All right. Okay, my last pick for side A. Um, this one. <laughs> this is a departure again from um, everything that's come before on my list. Um, our listeners have likely heard of Nerdcore. We've talked about it uh, once or twice on past episodes. Uh, But in case we have picked up any new listeners, uh, nerdcore is a genre of music with a heavy focus on traditionally nerdy or geeky subjects. Um, It is sometimes actually called geeksta rap. I didn't know that. Never heard of that. Yeah, I had never never heard of that. I I found that this week and I thought that is pretty cool, Uh, which of course is a mocking reference to gangsta rap. Um, The artists who perform nerdcore usually self-identify as nerds and they typically describe their own work as nerdcore. And a number of styles and sounds are encompassed by the genre. Um, It actually was birthed in hip-hop and rap, um, and still you'll find most nerdcore falls into that genre. But um, yeah, all styles, all sounds can be encompassed by this label. Um, So that's that's nerdcore, you know, essentially. But are you familiar with Nintendocore? No, not we're okay. in a whole rabbit hole that there we go. Uh, I yeah. wasn't expecting to go down today. Let me let me bring it. Um, it is a thing, and it is gaining popularity among fanboys for whom gaming is a passion. Okay, uh, 
my next selection actually comes from the most successful band of this relatively unknown genre. Uh, they're kind of the poster boys in, in many ways for the Nintendo generation. Uh, a pop, punk, progressive Nintendo core band from Chicago called I Fight Dragons. Hmm. Band name, I Fight Dragons. Nice. Which in itself kind of tells you where this is going. <laughs> so in, in 2010... They covered the Huey Lewis classic, The Power of Love. So the defining characteristic of Nintendo Core is its use of chiptune. Now, chiptune are the electronic sounds. Like 8-bit yeah, sound? Okay. And, and few notes synthesize songs from vintage arcade games, computers, and video game consoles. Mostly um, those that come from Nintendo Game Boys and Nintendo Entertainment Systems. Gotcha. They integrate chiptune okay, into these songs and allow the, the electronic sounds of these video games to in many ways create the okay, the, sense, yeah. the yeah. layered mm-hmm. uh, melodies of the, of the the songs they're performing, uh, I fight dragons are are kind of the originators of this, um, and it is it's growing in popularity. Um, I had never heard of it. <laughs> I found this band purely by accident, but um, yeah, chiptune integrating chiptune is is a a rising thing. Um, I fight dragons has created quite a bit of buzz. And they've gathered a, a very impressive following in just a short amount of time as they helped to bring Nintendo Core mainstream. They are essentially electropop uh, for game geeks, a band laced with Nintendo-esque MIDI and, and 2000s ultra-positivity that does not pretend to be anything hip for irony's sake. Okay? Got it, yep. So it, it really is. It's, a, it's an extension of nerdcore. Um, in 2010, they signed with Photo Finish Atlantic Records, and then went on to appear on the MTV Too Fast for Love tour, opening for 303, Cobra Starship, and Travis McCoy. That same year, World Wrestling Entertainment chose the band's song Money as its theme song for the inaugural Money in the Bank pay-per-view, which further boosted the band's popularity. And since that time, I Fight Dragons has released three full-length albums and two EPs. They have also entered the living rooms of over 6 million television viewers as they wrote and recorded the theme song to the hit ABC sitcom, The Goldbergs. Oh, okay. Yeah. They continue to headline Nerdapalooza every year, and they have played the Warp Tour several times since 2012. Um, their, their rise may not be felt by Gen X, uh, but they continue to feed the gaming community. For millennials and Gen Zers, that is a very large market. Um... But yeah, their take on Huey Lewis. Um, I love their version of Power of Love. And it is just wild when listening to it and hearing, you know, all of the Mario sounds, you know, in the, because it's so, it's not extraneous. I mean, it actually, it fits right. in, in the recording. And it's just, 
unlike anything I've ever heard. I I actually I found this band just in the last month because on Spotify, you know how they the algorithm works. I was putting in cover after cover after cover, you know, listening to all the covers that, on the playlist that I created for years now, trying to decide what I was going to use for this episode. And, you know, basically Spotify said, well, try this. And they threw I Fight Dragons at me. And man, it just, it clicked. And Ben, who is a gamer, he was nearby, you know, listening and he he, he just perked up. He had never heard of Nintendo Core either, but he, he just, I mean, just wide smile. He just looked at me and said, Dad, I like this cover. That's awesome. So, yeah, it, it, it is something new. I had not heard of it before the genre, and I thought, this is as good a time as any to, yeah, it's great. to introduce it to our listeners. So, Pretty cool. There you go. All right, well, I guess it's on me to close out part one here, side A. And um, the la- this, this may be my favorite 80s song of all time. I'm talking about Take On Take On Me by Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the video is great and it's, it's groundbreaking, but the song, the song itself, um regardless of the of the video is is just a masterpiece. The song is it's so emotional too. You lose that in Aha's, you know, synth sure. recording. You slow it down, it is it's heartbreaking. Yes, yes. And so Aha caught lightning in a bottle when they wrote and recorded their masterpiece Take On Me in 1984. As I said, maybe my favorite song of the of the eighties. And it might be surprising that I would entertain any other version of my favorite song of the eighties. Uh, would a song even work if they say lifted the iconic keyboard riff right out of the song? Hmm. Well, jump to two thousand nine when Spanish singer songwriter Annie B. Sweet released her debut album and proved that the song is still great based on its melody alone. Keyboard riff, which everybody knows, I think it was it was sampled in a couple hip hop songs. Um, you can even take that out, and that's how strong this song is, just on the melody alone. Uh, Sweet's version features a ukulele and an acoustic guitar, together creating this kind of rhythmic shuffle that supports the vocal and results in this kind of prayerful but sunny tone. It's upbeat. Um, I know it's, like we mentioned, it, it's a cliche for indie artists to take a Smash Pop song, rearrange it, present it back to the world in its new form. But I, I just enjoy hearing talented and creative artists reinterpreting and redefining work. So I don't, I don't mind that trope, you know? Right. I don't see it as a cop-out. I see it as a just a creative expre- uh, expression mm-hmm. of a great song. No, I agree. Sweet started playing and composing music when she was only seven years old and has released four studio albums, her latest in 2019. So hopefully the... Um, 
COVID didn't didn't stop her from from continuing to perform. Yeah, and and record. You know, we we talked we've talked about that on the Uncharted episodes because that's what I, what I found for a lot of these artists too is that 2017 2018 was the last album released. Yeah, yeah. And I can't. These are such new artists as is that finding out if they are still together, it, it's you know I I. It, I, I'm worried that some of these bands that I've discovered that I really like are already over and done. Well, so. or they just, you know, they lost their record contract. Well, yeah, that too. That too. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't sell well enough to continue to have a label, even an independent label, um, invest in them. Yeah. No. Agreed. Um, actually, you know, there is a lot to be said for these stripped, you know, versions of, of 80s hits. They have even inspired the original artists. Aha in 2017 released the acoustic take on me. Have you heard their their acoustic mm, version of their own no. song? Yeah, and they they've actually credited um Enemy Sweet. Sweet. Oh, really? Yeah, oh. for 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 influencing them to do that to do such. Nice. Um yeah, it it's you know, it, it is coffee house, it is a trope, it it's it's very cliché, but there's a reason it's done, you know. Sometimes that's okay. Yeah, <laughs> it is. And and it's it's a lot of these songs are very moving and they're very they're they're chilling to to hear, you know, with acoustic accompaniment, just that very simple presentation. Again, it proves that a good song is a good song. Exactly. You can change up the rhythm, you can change up the tempo, you can change up the lyrical structure, you can even add chords that weren't in the original. But if it's a great song, it's gonna be a great song in just about any form. Agreed. Which brings me back to what I said at the beginning. It's all about for me anyway the motivation for performing the cover so yep. and that's it for side a folks yep we will be back in two weeks with another 12 cuts of uh gen x covers in uh reverse I yeah guess. <laughs> it, it's so hard I, that's why i you know i wanted to do this two right gen x covers part two, two volume we'll say gen set, x covers yeah. part two yeah um but yeah it, it's so hard to differentiate uh, in, in conversation we will be back with 12 more cuts of contemporary artists performing gen x tunes so well that's all for this time hot funk cool punk even if it's old junk another mix of memories awaits in two weeks but for now press pause lift the needle and hit eject and we will see you on the flip side Sitting in a box undigified Gonna rewind and give them one more try Think about the days of lo-fi Mixtape Memorex and TDK Getting music out there the old-fashioned way Making the greatest hits of one day Mixtape Phonograph and dual cassette Before you could get everything on the internet But some things ain't made it there yet Mixtape Line in, line out If you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker Turn the volume to nine Here's an accidental slice of time